You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's episode is a replay of an on-air coaching call from almost three years ago in the fall of 2019. During the conversation, my guest Kate Lynch made some big plans, and I invited her to come back for an update once she'd accomplished them. Well, that time has come, so I am re-releasing this episode in preparation for next week's episode, which is Kate's update. I'm excited for you to get to know Kate or refresh your memory. Listen to her story this week so you can really enjoy next week's episode even more. Let's jump right into this on-air coaching call, and I'll see you on the other side. So tell me a little bit about your teaching history and how you got into yoga, how you started teaching, and what your current situation looks like. Let's see. I got into yoga late 90s. Because I was a stressed out fashion designer, had a couple of car accidents and whiplash. My friend recommended Kundalini Yoga, actually. And when I was on vacation to my first class, it was Kundalini Yoga and kind of instant, instant results. And I felt motivated to continue. I never bought myself as a teacher. And I wanted to get out of that industry. Ended up in Australia married to a firefighter, an Australian surfer and firefighter. Very romantic, totally not workable situation. So during that time, the only yoga that was around was available was down at the surf club. It was Ashtanga. It was this woman who was the surfer who was just sharing her practice. And I got more into yoga and then 9-11 happened. People kept, people were saying, you should be a teacher. And I'm like, nah, that's not me can't imagine being in front of people. I get so nervous. (laughs) And I want to be a ceramic artist. That was what I decided. I wanted to be an artist. I am an artist. It was sort of this sudden thing of, I feel helpless. I can't do anything. I can't even get to my family. There was a day where I didn't know where my dad was. And it, it was huge. It shifted our whole world. And it got me to start my studies. And there was a There's a college, Nature Care College in Sydney, Australia. And I did a couple of semesters of anatomy and physiology of, they call it counseling or something like that. It's like how to listen to people, basically. And that was starting my road. But then my grandfather gave all his grandchildren some money. And I was able to use that to then come back to the States and do a month-long in New Mexico with Yogi Bhajan and my teacher, Hadi Kar, who is, is in Manhattan now, although I hardly ever see her, which makes me very sad. So then I went back and started teaching Kundalini Yoga in Sydney. And then we almost immediately moved to Newcastle, where most people have never even heard of yoga or definitely don't think of themselves as people who would practice yoga. Is this still in Australia? Yeah, Newcastle, Australia. <laughs> yeah, it's up, it's up the coast from Sydney a couple hours. And it's, it's a coastal town, very lifestyle-oriented. 
pretty working class, blue collar, pretty would be socially, as far as yoga is concerned, a decade or so behind what's going on here or even in Sydney, probably. So that was 2002. I started teaching. The very first person came to my living room was a mom who was pregnant with her third child, who she already knew had Down syndrome. And she was very excited and preparing to welcome this little girl. And that sort of started my, started me off. It was just like, okay, this is where, this is the kind of people I'm going to meet. This is the kind of transformation and learning that I'm going to experience um, as I teach yoga. And that was a real eye-opener to me. This is how I gained my friends and community there. Even though I had boundaries, I really realized, like, these are my people. <laughs> and eventually, six years into being in Australia, the marriage ended and I moved back. And in the meantime, I went to India and then went to the Omega Institute for a season. And I was a volunteer there for a season. So I was teaching staff, but also working all kinds of different jobs there and living in a tent. And came back to Brooklyn or moved to Brooklyn and came back to the city and started from scratch trying to teach. And I just would, at that point, Golden Ridge, New York had just opened and they gave me a job. And I also worked at a, at a place that made doses. Hampton Chutney was just like a, you know, like a cashier job basically in Soho and took whatever classes I could. And people gave me lots of opportunities and it didn't take long to where I was teaching like 20 classes and I gave up the other jobs. And then I met my partner. We got married. We bought a place. We eventually got pregnant. There was a lot of, there was a lot of fertility stuff and I was doing a ton of meditation and yoga work around that and just to calm my anxiety, <laughs> which is something that has always been with me, the anxiety. So we eventually had my son and that pregnancy didn't go as I had expected. And so prenatal yoga teacher, I kind of thought I got this. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was 40 when I got pregnant, 41 when I had my son. There were a lot of discomforts and challenges to the pregnancy. And then his first year was a big eye opener. At six months, I knew there was something different. I didn't have any other kids. And we were totally head over heels in love with him. However, I had been teaching parent-baby classes, prenatal, parent-taught for a while. And um, my big thing was always like, oh, they have their own timing, but they kind of follow a similar trajectory developmentally. Well, he was not. And it took me a while to realize it, but at six months, I started to get worried. He dropped off the growth scale completely. And he's still a string bean, but uh, yeah, I'm not as worried about him anymore. <laughs> so so at about a year, I kind of pushed the pediatrician. She said, okay, you're right. Let's refer him to early intervention. And it's just been going from there since then. So he was the three and a half diagnosed with autism. He has the low needs or high functioning that they used to call Asperger's. And He's amazing. And life was super challenging. I found community in an online community, but also friends. And that was everything, you know, having those friends and having that online community that gave me both support and also advice. So 
I put my my career pretty much on autopilot and I did go back to teaching at six months, five months actually. And it was super hard, but because I taught at the Y, I could take him and drop him off at the childcare, teach for an hour, pick him up. And we just made, made naps work around that. And it was stressful, but I felt the need to keep teaching. I had to contribute to our family's income. So my husband takes on most of that, but it's been super challenging that way. All right. So then my, my son went through a process we call here in New York turning five. I don't know if you have that, but I visited a dozen schools touring different schools, both public and private funded schools for special needs and prayed that he would get into this program in New York. It's only in New York City right now. I think in some city in Denmark as well. but it's called the ASD NETS program. And it's specifically really targeted to kids just like him. So he did, he got in. Then I thought I could relax. Yeah, he's, he was in kindergarten. I was like, okay, now I can go back to building my career. He's going to be one I will. Then I figured out that there was still a lot of advocacy that needed to happen. And his first year there was <laughs> not, not smooth. I don't think anyone's first year of kindergarten is super smooth. But I, it was a huge learning curve for me as far as the school, because it is a public school. It's an amazing public school. I grew up going to public schools in New York City, and I didn't realize how much racial stress and implicit bias I had been raised with, and I had been carrying with me all along. So, so that's been a huge wake-up call to me as well, and has really started me down another whole path, which is aligned with the path of uh, advocating for my son and other kids with special needs. It's all, what I finally realized is there's one word that kind of sums it all up and that's inclusion. So my classes became more and more inclusive, more and more accepting, I guess, of and really encouraging of everyone's differences. And I really love because I teach in gyms, I meet so many different kinds of people, some who have no idea like that they're even in a body and have never done anything <laughs> and certainly don't know. You know, they were told to do yoga by someone and they tried it. And because hopefully because they saw that there were people who were different in their class, they didn't feel like, oh, I don't belong here. Like I really focus on belonging. And that's my, um, that I feel like is my strength now, you know? So the, the wounds have become the, the strength, I guess, is that I have been through a little bit of a roller coaster on my life. And even before what I started describing with, with yoga, there was a lot, but because I've used the tools of yoga throughout this whole time in my own way. <laughs> I can't say I have the kind of practice I had before I had my son, you know, as far as time or consistency, but it feels like it's integrated in me and I've been able to teach him values based on that in a very explicit way. He won't do yoga with me. <laughs> Neither will my husband, by the way, who was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. <laughs> couple of years ago. Yeah. So this is a whole other neurological wave that we've been 
sorting through. My husband's great. My son is now great. And last year, while he was in third grade, I was able to put him in after school a couple of days a week and start to focus on branching out from just those dozen classes that I've been teaching at the gym, the same schedule for the whole time, really, the last 12 years. I've been teaching the same schedule, same classes, have some people have been with me the whole time, and was able to build a website, start a podcast. <laughs> Which is mostly like, I've found that people want short guided meditations. And that's what they want from me. Then on the rest of other students, I did my first retreat this summer. How, how did that retreat go? So it happened. And I'm grateful for that. I learned a ton. And I hope the next one will be easier. And I hope more people will sign up. We had five people. So we, the, the venue, we were talking about only doing it if we had 10, maybe eight at the very minimum. And then I was like, we kind of went back and forth. Do you want to do it? Do you want to not want to do it? Maybe one more person will sign up. And she finally said, yeah, let's do, it's on a farm. And it's someone I met through being upstate. So she was like, let's do a pared down version. And that kind of scared me because I was like, well, these people have paid the whole amount not a pared down amount what does that mean and what that meant was she did less and I did more (laughs) (laughs) so of course I wanted to give people a full-on experience not a pared down experience and um it was emotionally physically and mentally super draining but I think they had a great time we had a lot of fun on the farm and I think some more than others had a pretty transformative experience Was there a theme or an idea around the retreat or was it kind of like, come have a retreat? Like what was the... Mm -hmm. So I called it Unwind and Untold. I think I could have actually done less as far as my angle because the farm, as the farmer said, the farm really takes care of people itself. And the we I had to throw a lot of this stuff out the window because... Just being, I mean, one of the places is in an outdoor, on an outdoor pavilion that has a roof. And the chickens just walk up. They just walk up onto the pavilion and come hang out with you (laughs) here in Shavasana. I mean, it's wild. And the other place is above the barn. It's a loft above the barn. And the dad is a carpenter as well as a farmer. So he's built this amazing space. And you're above the barn. So every once in a while you hear, <laughs> or, whoa. And that, you know, that adds or subtracts from meditation, depending on how you look at it. So I was constantly reframing, basically. Yeah. And they started doing the same thing and having a sense of humor about it and having a good time. Yeah, that's our first night, the, the opening ceremony. It, there was a thunderstorm and the roof I mean, they couldn't hear me. I had to just go around and kind of whisper in their ear or demonstrate something for them to do. Yeah, it was the loudest thunderstorm I've ever heard. And then later we had the guinea hens. And it was just like, (laughs) really, I think next time I would be more like, it's farm and yoga. Because the farm is definitely a presence. That makes sense. So it sounds like if you did it there again, that the marketing would be different. The messaging would be different. Right. But I'm not sure I wanted to do it there again. Makes sense. You said, do you want to talk about your niche? You wanted to talk about how to make more money as a yoga teacher. And you wanted to talk about 
getting over your fear of taking big steps. And it was really interesting because later on in the forum, you also said, I'm really good at feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And I was like, okay, so I wonder where that, like, where's that disconnect? So we'll kind of maybe pull back around to niche and money, but I'm just so curious about that juxtaposition of how you said that that's what you want to get better at and that you're already really really good at it. So what do you think? It's a really, really good question. (laughs) And I think um, generally being too hard on myself because I really have come a long way this year. I have really pushed myself and maybe I'm wanting to take bigger and bigger steps, but pushing myself so far out of my comfort zone, then the anxiety comes up and I start getting scattered. But that's a really interesting question and I'm not sure. So do you think that it's not so much the fear of taking big steps, but more about the uncertainty about which big steps to take? I think that would be a helpful way to frame it. And then at the same time, as somebody with anxiety, it's like you're living with fear every day. So it's not so much the fear of taking big steps. It's just the relationship with the fear. Like, oh, yeah, there you are. There you are. (laughs) (laughs) Back to my breathing. (laughs) But yeah, the anxiety, I really don't know where I would be at if I didn't have yoga and meditation because the anxiety is such a big part of my everyday. And during pregnancy and after pregnancy, I did find out that I had an actual heart condition. And they, you know, supposedly they operated on it, but it doesn't feel like it has changed that much. So even when I don't feel any fear, anything, I guess that's what the anxiety is. It's not stress, but it's like, wow, the feeling of stress is still there. Even when there's no trigger for it, there's nothing actually stimulating it in the moment. I wonder if the heart condition created a nervous system response, nervous system stress response that your body is just so acclimated to. Yes. Even if the heart condition is better, that has become part of who you are. And so even the childhood, you know, the uncertain childhood and all that. But which came first, the chicken or the egg, the heart or the anxiety? It doesn't really matter. So I've gotten clearer on the niche since I filled out the form, but I would love your feedback on that. The money is a high priority right now because I do feel more responsibility for taking on more of the household expenses and taking pressure off my poor husband. And what you said about figuring out where to put focus my energy so that it aligns with those other two, I guess. Okay, good. Let's jump into the niche then because that's kind of where it all starts. This is what I've come down to, and I don't know if it's too narrow now. Parents like me. Parenting is not at all what they expected. They have kids who are differently wired or special needs or even kids on the spectrum. I mean, I don't know how narrow to get. And it's stressful. It's much more stressful even than parenting neurotypical children. And a lot of times there's stigma and shame along with feeling alone. It can be hell if that's what comes up. If people don't, you know, are in denial, they're joining a club they didn't want to join, right? They never, nobody ever asked to join this group. I feel like I can offer them a sense of belonging and and some tools that they can use in their daily life for themselves. Is my niche too narrow? Absolutely not. Okay. 
it's so counterintuitive, but the more fledgling your business is, the more narrow you need to be with your niche. Because in the beginning, it's really about personal connections and emotional responses. And of course, it stays that way as you expand. But it's much easier to create personal connections and emotional responses with a narrow niche than it is with a broad niche. So when you speak of your experience, you can really connect to the hopes and dreams and fears and challenges of people who have kids on the spectrum, for example. I think that you know this, but my daughter is on the spectrum or my older daughter is. I listened to that episode. Yeah. And it totally made me cry. (laughs) So that's why like hearing you tell your story, I'm like bawling here (laughs) because of that connection that I like that empathy. I know what you're talking about. I really do. And right. You talk about your offerings. That's how the potential clients are going to feel like she understands me. She gets me. Right. And it's so much easier to do that the narrower you get. Here's my obstacle. You might have experienced this yourself. What I've noticed with these parents is they'll, they'll take free advice, which I've been giving since I had any advice to give. And I was accepting advice and giving advice and they'll accept that. Thank you so much. They'll read my articles. They'll listen to my podcast maybe. But as soon as money comes into it, and I've seen this with other people because I haven't done it yet, but I've seen this with other people on these online groups or whatever. Soon as you ask them to invest, it feels like a betrayal. How dare you ask me for money when I'm already spending so much on my kids' therapies, uh, my kids, maybe my kids' school. I'm not, it, not necessarily how, how dare, but I can't spend that money on this. I can only spend that money on something that directly impacts my child. N- nobody has taken me up on it, but I've had conversations where people want me to come and teach their child mindfulness. And I'm like, well, it won't really have as much of an impact if you're not also practicing mindfulness yourselves as a family, like together as a family or separately, but it really has to start with the parents. I mean, I'm better at that. I can teach kids. I've taught kids for years. I can do, I can do all of it, but I really feel like if I'm going to niche down, that's what, where I can be the most of service. And yet there's that obstacle. So your potential clients can be in one of several different places as far as education goes. They can be unaware that there's a problem and unaware that there's a solution to their problem, right? That's like completely unaware. They can be aware that there's a problem, but not aware of what the solution is or that there is a solution. They can be aware of the problem and aware of the solution, okay? So those are the ones that are going to be the easiest to invite is the people who are aware that they have a problem and aware that there's a solution and that you have the solution. If you are dealing with one of the other categories, then there's a lot more pre-education involved. And so the free stuff that you're putting out, it needs to be geared towards taking them from that place to ready and willing to spend money on that solution. So that's where that free stuff needs to come in. So one of the things is going to be to evaluate what what the free stuff you're putting out there is and is it helping people on that journey? Yeah, I think it's more general at this point. I mean, it's about finding emotional balance 
but it's not specific to parents, kids with special needs. Because I, I was afraid to go too clearly into that. And also, like I said, it's a club that people don't necessarily want to admit that they belong to. Yeah. Since I'm an ideal client for you, <laughs> I'm a good person to right. give you feedback. The one, one thing that I had as a different experience from you is that I did not get a diagnosis until my daughter was 14. So throughout her childhood, I had a sense, yeah, she probably is ADHD or something, but what's the point of getting diagnosed? So I did not have any support. I did not have all of those organizations and all of those like people. people. (laughs) I didn't have that. Once I got the diagnosis, once I understood, once I had the framework to like understand what I had experienced, I started reaching out for support. And at that point, I became a lot more willing to spend money on that support. Now for myself, I had already been using the tools of yoga, right? just like you had. I clung to those. That's how I got through that time. Yeah. But... I think it's a self-limiting belief to imagine that just because some people aren't willing to spend money, that nobody's willing. Okay. I like that. In a market like New York, and these days having access to the whole world as our potential clients, I absolutely believe that you can find people, whether in person or online. And there's different approaches that you need to use, whether you want to really focus in person or online. But you have options. Now, sometimes options are overwhelming and (laughs) that makes it actually harder. I don't think it's too narrow. And I, being in your, like being one of your ideal customer avatars, I'm going to tell you, I'd be willing to pay. And could you show up in person or would you rather do it as like a Zoom meeting or something like that? I'm an introvert. I'd rather stay home and do it over Zoom. Right. But th- but with other people. Sure. That's fine. That's much more comfortable for me than mm. having to get in my car and go somewhere else. You know, the, the good thing about in-person is it's a really great way to test your ideas mm-hmm. because you get such nuanced real-time feedback. It's a bit more challenging even over video. That can be an option just for like your kind of incubator test round could be in person or not. You know, it, it, it kind of depends on, for example, if you're somebody who's not comfortable with technology, then maybe doing your in-person test round, taking the technology out of your in-person text, test round, honing the method first, mm-hmm. then bringing it online that might make sense for somebody who that's a burden for. For me, it's not really a burden. I don't, I don't mind the tech. And, <laughs> and being, you know, leaving my house is more of, a, more of a burden for me. I'm getting better with the tech. I mean, it's been a huge learning curve, but I, I like throwing myself into things like that that are new, that are doable. So tell me more about the podcast that you have. I, it's basically, this is what, helps me get through the day. And I did do a few, a few where I themed it on the Yamas. And then I was going to do the Niyamas and I got stuck. You're going to, hopefully you'll laugh about this. 
I got stuck on Saucha because I'm like, my brain is chaotic. My life is chaotic. I don't feel like I got it. you know. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to wait on that. So I've been theming my classes based on the yamas and yamas. And then I would do like at the end of the month. So I do a month long theme. Then at the end of the month, I would do a podcast or sometime during the month, I would do a podcast and I would put other ones in between. And also I started blogging. Did I mention? No, so, that, that too. It's really a lot. I have a whole list. There's more. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like it would be beneficial for you to narrow down and focus in and simplify a little bit. And there, all of a sudden, you have your Saucha theme. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and that's what I'm hoping to glean from this. And I'll just put in one more, one more monkey wrench is this week, I got an email from a publisher that does specifically autism publishing, seeking proposals. I wrote to them and said, I don't know if this is the kind of thing you would be interested in, but I want to do something for parents. They were interested. So now I'm, I've decided I'm going to write a book and I've never done it before and I don't know how long it'll take, but it just feels really right. Okay. If I were in your shoes, I would focus on the book right now. Okay make space for it, use it to develop your system, use it to hone your message, and then you'll use it as credibility. So I wouldn't start with trying to create a big program and write a book and keep the podcast and the blog going, this is too much. (laughs) What I would do is as you write the book, use little snippets from the book on your podcast. Yeah. Okay. So you're repurposing. Yeah. The book is going to be central for a while. So everything else you do is revolving around the book. Okay. The podcast is not like some extra big other thing that you do. It's, oh, I got this lovely chunk from the, that I just wrote for the book. I'm going to read it and put it on the podcast. Oh, I've got this chunk that would make a better, would be better as a blog post. I'm going to publish that as a blog, but I, would recommend that you don't do anything outside of the book for the podcast or the blog for now, that you really centralize the book and get that, use that as your, as your saucha. You use that as your focus and your clarity and your simplicity. Obviously, once the book is done, it's like, we need to have another conversation. I'm afraid that I won't do it. I'm afraid that I won't finish it because I'm someone who starts things like, oh, I have 10 books I'm reading right now. Yeah. Yes. So I am afraid and I really want to do it. I am with you. I totally get that. And what I've had to do, you've probably heard me talk about it on the podcast or other places, I have had to hire people to hold me accountable, like set structures for accountability where there's no wiggling out for me. And the reason for that is that humans are driven by emotions. And especially those of us who are driven by it, who, who struggle with anxiety, we are going to do a lot of avoiding in order to not feel that pain. And so if we get the sense that by not finishing something, changing our focus, doing something else, that we're going to get to self-soothe emotionally, there's no chance for our rational brain to override that powerful limbic system that is trying to keep you safe. Yeah. Now the rational brain knows 
that if you sit down and you get it done, you you do get that reward. You do get that feeling of like, wow, I can't believe I did that. But the limbic brain, the midbrain is so powerful and so fast that it just controls our behavior. And it's like the people who plan to do a meditation and find themselves sitting on their bed looking at their phone for two hours. It's not because they don't know better. It's because your brain wants to protect you from feeling bad. And doing something, taking on the job of writing a book, that's signing up for some emotional pain. Mm -hmm. That's not the behavior of someone who wants to just be comfortable. So do you think that's harder? would be all right if I'm hiring someone to keep me accountable? I think it depends on the person. Yeah. This is the recent thing that I did was hire somebody to do like my show notes and my uploading everything. I'm like, it's (laughs) such a relief, but it's also holding me accountable. I'm not going to be the one to prevent her from doing her job. Mm -hmm. Well, this is exciting. I just kind of threw that in at the last minute, but I I wasn't really sure, you know, if that was the first. I'm really glad that you said that that's the, the focus. That's the first thing and, and have everything revolve around that. If you don't make it primary, it'll never happen. Yeah. But everything else can then come from that energy that I'm putting into the book. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then what you'll be doing is you'll be building an audience of people who are excited to get your book. Because even if they get little snippets from, of it in blogs and in podcasts, it's not the same as having it all organized there where they can flip through it. So you'll basically be pre-selling it. Right. Okay. Are you going to write a book soon? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I had an idea for a book, but... I'm not ready to put it front and center. Just planting that just in case. <laughs> Thank you, though. I love that you think that I would have a book in me. I, I would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to one day. But I'm so excited for you that you have one in you right now. I do. Thank you. Yeah. I do. So that feels like a good conclusion point. Do you have any other loose ends that you think we need to touch on? I I guess I'm still worried about the money because mm-hmm. I don't think the book will, I mean, it's a long-term project. And if you have any final tips about basically staying with integrity, I haven't pursued private clients that much because, I don't know, there are a million reasons, but finding ways to increase my income now feels important. Mm-hmm. My income has been stagnant. For the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Well, I think stress about income plus writing a book, that is, that's a really hard combination. Yeah. Good point. Because you, I think you're going to have to invest in this book. And it's not that the book itself is going to pay dividends. It's that the book is the credibility for the program afterwards. So once you have the book, now you have a clear message. Now you have a clear program. And then you can create an online course and retreats around helping people implement the lessons in the book. Because very few people, there are a few, but there's, I would say maybe 10% of the population can read a book and implement the lessons from a book. Most people need extra help. Most people need 
individualized examples, step-by-step guidance, and want that type of support. So what I would be thinking about is as you create the book, what is the program? What is the course that is the companion to it? And that's where the money is going to come from. Okay. But it's an investment time. You can't do everything at once. On the Saucha theme, I don't know what your weekly schedule is like, but I would recommend having at least one, if not two days per week that you're not teaching any classes and you have your son in school and you are like, this is it. You're diving in. At the moment, I have one. Well, make that one day absolutely sacred. Okay. So no doctor's appointments. No coffee with friends. Those can like be fit in on other days when there's other Mm -hmm. distractions. But to do creative work, you really need to carve out a container for it. Well, this was a super interesting and surprising (laughs) session. (laughs) It was great meeting you uh, online. (laughs) Finally, yeah, after listening to your podcast for a really long time. So thank you for all that you do, Madao. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, after listening to this episode again, I feel badly that I did not take more time to help Kate brainstorm her question about how to make more money. The ending just feels abrupt to me, and it feels like I didn't fully hear her concerns and help her address her needs. I think probably what happened is that I had another call booked and didn't have the time, but I think it would have been more skillful to say that. Figuring out how to help an individual yoga teacher increase their income is pretty much a whole episode in itself. I would have wanted to ask her what her current teaching schedule looks like, how much she's making each class, what her goals are, how much she'd like to make. But here are some general things I could have suggested to her and would if I could go back in time. First is find some corporate classes to teach. It's not her passion. And every extra class she teaches is energy taken away from the book. But at the same time, it's possible that bringing in more money would reduce her anxiety and actually give her more energy to focus on the book. So corporate classes, especially if she could stack a corporate class next to a class that she's already teaching in the same area, or if she could stack several corporate classes for the same company back to back. Second, reach out to some private schools to see if she could teach kids classes, since she mentioned that's something she feels competent doing. And again, the ideal would be several classes back to back so that there's not as much task switching. One of the themes of the episode that Kate was sharing is how scattered she feels. And I think this is really common for yoga teachers because We have so little structure in our lives, and there's so much switching between locations and styles and students. So the more that we can group our classes together, for example, having teaching days where we do a lot of teaching and then admin days or writing days, basically just try to reduce some of that chaos. And this also comes back to that theme of Saucha that kept coming up in the episode, in the conversation with Kate, that our lives are chaotic, the world is chaotic, and 
if we don't take ownership over our lives and consciously streamline, let go of things that aren't serving us, group-like tasks and activities together, then the chaos is just naturally going to happen. The nice thing about these two ideas of teaching corporate classes or children's classes at a private school is that they would not require ongoing marketing. And marketing is a big energy drain, especially for somebody who's trying to create, trying to do a big creative project like write a book. The other possibility is to do series or workshop classes where you have a minimum. So you make sure that you're not going to teach them unless you're making a certain amount. But in that case, I would recommend that she stick with content from the book so that the very act of teaching the workshops or teaching the series actually feeds the book as well. I also now have a three-episode series about how to make more money as a yoga teacher. Each one covers a different stage of teaching and the different strategies that are likely to be effective in each stage. Most of the time, it's not a quick fix, though. So something like taking on corporate classes, taking on classes at a school, that's more of a Band-Aid approach. What I prefer helping yoga teachers do is create a long-term sustainable strategy, but that takes time. And, and that's what I was talking about with Kate, that you can't really build that and write a book at the same time. It's two big projects where she's also already the parent of a neurodiverse child. So now that you've heard a bit of Kate's story and her big dream of writing a book, stay tuned for next week's episode where I'll check back in with her to learn what it was like to write the book and when it will be published and what her plans are going forward. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.